You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the 15th of December 2023. The time is 4.03 p.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Kamar Ahmad Zafar live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we've brought two topics for you today. The first topic, which we shall discuss between now and 5 p.m., is about ICC, the war crimes, um, and especially around the current situation in the Middle East, uh, the the war between Israel and um, uh, the Palestinian people, I should say. Uh, Is there... um, uh, what are the prospects of an investigation? Um, can an investigation um, be actually conducted? And whether an investigation will actually uh, matter? So those are the questions that we shall discuss in the uh, in the first hour. And um, in the in the second hour, we shall talk about uh, a very different um, topic, actually. So we will talk about call to Islam. And we will talk uh, to a few people who have... Um, uh, who have been who've shown interest in Islam and who've uh, um, uh, who've seen uh, the side of Islam that most people in um, that media that uh, media doesn't show very often. So those are the two topics. We will be live until six p.m. You can call us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And with that introduction, a very warm welcome, Imam Kamar. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum assalam. Peace be with you. I don't know what they've done. The tech team have upgraded the mics. I can yes. literally hear myself breathing. This is the voice <laughs> of Islam, 4D. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, yes. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> anyway, let's carry on to the point. The point is you've you kind of highlighted kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And I would say, actually, they are somewhat related topics, the mm-hmm. first two. We've got the ICC investigating war crimes, uh, and we're going to be talking about that. And then we are going to be talking about Muslims who have been inspired by not only what they've read and what they've observed, but also by the faith-inspiring accounts of uh, the civilians in Palestine, Gaza, and those who are really, through adversity, showing what their faith is really made of. And I think that's inspired a lot of people around the world. But that's going to obviously come for the next hour, so you're going to have to wait for that. But yeah, uh, Daniel, we, we are talking right now about the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And we're going to obviously have some guests on, the experts, we're not the experts, to find out exactly what their jurisdiction is. Can they, first of all, actually investigate and even if they potentially theoretically can can they actually do something because we've already seen that okay ICC big name sounds pretty cool but you also have the UN also sounds pretty powerful pretty mighty they've had a few We uh, Daniel used told us about General Assembly they've had one of those they've had a few other voting sessions where they've supposedly at some points called for a ceasefire a lot of countries have done it only then to be vetoed by none else than the US and to be abstained by the UK. And there you go, it's nothing actually happened. So what does any of this actually mean, really? That, that's what I want to really try and figure out at the end of the day of this show, that even if the UN is doing what they, they supposedly say they're doing and the ICC will continue their investigations, what actual change will it bring to the lives of the people on the ground? And I think, to Daniel, to get a better understanding of, of this, we first have to figure out what is the ICC. Because even me, I've heard that name a lot. Like ICC, oh, criminal court, sounds cool, sounds powerful. What on earth are they? And what I've learned over a brief, you know, short time is that they are completely independent to the UN 
And they were actually formed out of a treaty uh, of multiple different countries. I think now there's maybe 60, 70 countries in there. And in around 1998, and that kept on growing. And the ICC, which I didn't know, actually does not investigate countries. It does not investigate organizations. It investigates individuals alone. So we investigate a person for a war crime or a genocidal act. And that's quite unique where I thought, okay, we have a lot of countries that are saying, well, should they have the right to investigate us or should they have not the right to investigate us? It's not really about an organization or a country, to be honest. It's actually about a particular individual. But we all know where these interests and talks are coming from. So this is who they are. They are the body that is an independent body which has been around for 20 plus years now and is responsible for investigating humanitarian crimes, whether it's genocide, whether it's apartheid, you name it. And we, we know that in the past, and this is actually a criticism actually on the ICC, that in the past, they have been fairly quick to issue, for example, arrest warrants against the likes of Putin. And in, the, in Africa, they've been very quick to issue statements and investigations and it seemingly has been very swift and very easy. And the criticism and the question that's coming up upon now is that, of course, it was founded in around 1998 and their legislation doesn't allow them to investigate anything before that. Fair enough. But from 1998 to 2001 to 2015, 2021, 2023 now, what exactly have they been doing when it comes to Israel? And that is a big question that hopefully we're also going to be taking a look at today. Daniel, what do you what do you think? Yes, uh, before I come to that, I think you asked a very valid question. So what is the ICC? So um, ICC on its website um, gives out that uh, that information. So according to that website, International Criminal Court investigates and where warranted drives individuals hmm. charged with the gravest crimes of concern right. to the international community, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crimes of aggression. Hmm. As a court of last resort, it seeks to complement, not replace, national courts right. governed by an international treaty called the Rome Statute. Correct. And um, uh, um, the Rome Statute is really the uh, the body which, uh, or, or the, um, uh, the 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 groundwork, really. exactly the the rule book, uh, which the Assembly of State Parties. Um, according to which the Assembly of State Parties mm. meets and um, uh, uh, the seat of the court is in Hague or at the United Nations uh, headquarters in New York. And that's where the Assembly of State Parties meet mm. once a year. Each state party yeah. has one representative in the Assembly right. who may be accompanied by alternatives and advisors. The Rome Statute further provides that each state party has one vote although every effort should be made to reach decisions by consensus. Hmm. States that are not party to the Rome Statute may take part in the work of the Assembly as observers hmm. without the right to vote. And I think coming back to your earlier question, Palestine is an observer. Hmm. The, president, that, yeah. um, the president, the prosecutor and the registrar or the representatives may also participate as appropriate in the meetings of the Assembly. Hmm. In accordance with Article 112 of the Rome Statute, this, the Assembly is tasked with providing management oversight to the presidency, the prosecutor and registrar regarding administration of the court. In addition, the Assembly adopts the rules of procedures and evidence and the elements of crime. Hmm. That's a lot, yeah. but it does make a lot of sense. And I think this is relevant because, like I said, a lot of people right now in the public eye have lost hope in the UN. I've, I've seen articles last week 
saying the UN is dead. I'm not, and I wondered what what's going on. And really, what it's saying is that people have lost faith, trust, and an integrity in the UN after a, what one veto cancels everybody else's opinion. What's that all about? Okay, so pe- perhaps people now look are now looking elsewhere. We need another another superhero. We need someone else to save the day. Who's going to do it? And the ICC is now coming to the picture. If it's not going to be the UN, could it be the ICC? Can they make a difference? And there's a catch-22 here, Daniel, as, as you've already said, because they their jurisdiction kind of varies. It's not plain sailing. There are certain areas which will agree. They will say, yes, we are okay with the ICC being an authority in our area. We're happy with it. And therefore, the ICC can investigate. And there are those areas that will, number one, either say no, or they're not recognized states. Mm. And that's, this is kind of where this, this whole picture is becoming a bit murky. Because the ICC, I think, first time got involved into this whole issue publicly in around 2021, where Netanyahu, when he found out mm. that these, what he called them, quote-unquote, war crimes, mm. he said that this investigation is in itself an act of terrorism. Mm. And now recently... He said it that it's anti-Semitic, actually. He that's what he now. said now. Yeah. yeah, so it went from terrorism in 2021, that investigation by the ICC to investigate war crimes is terrorism. In 2023, he's now said that an investigation by the ICC into potential war crimes is what? Anti-Semitism. And this is, for me, personally, quite an absurd statement. And I'll tell you why. I know a lot of people will already be thinking, well, where do we draw the line? What is anti-Semitic? What isn't? I know a lot of people have their opinions about this. But here's let's let's kind of flip the picture on this, right? Right? Because what the ICC is doing isn't challenging Torahic scripture. It isn't challenging a theocracy. It isn't challenging theology. It's challenging political affairs. It's challenging their internal affairs of their country and what's what's done there. Now, let's say, for instance, that the ICC today stood up and picked a country which didn't represent in their, in their point of view, Judaism, but represented Islam. Do we have a country like that? Yes, we do. We have Pakistan, which was founded on the principle that it was going to be an, a place for Muslims to live in their autonomy. Mm. That's Pakistan. Now, if we were to say tomorrow that Pakistan does something of a similar nature, or if it's done something in the past of a similar nature, and the ICC says that we're going to investigate that today, and then the Pakistani officials stand up on the microphone and say, hey, that's Islamophobic. How many people would be like, oh, yeah, yeah that, that's a good point, you know? It's absolutely absurd. Mm. You wouldn't even think of someone getting away, away with a statement like that. Correct. So mm. why is it that when we flip the tables and Netanyahu comes and says that this is, quote unquote, some kind of prejudice, this is unfair, that you, how dare you investigate it? It sounds very silly. You know, this, uh, this slur of... Um uh, of anti-Semitism has now been weaponized, yeah. and it's it's very unfortunate that uh, that that's the case. So anybody who criticizes the Israeli government, criticizes the Israeli army, yeah. criticizes the politicians for what they're doing, it's... for what they are supposed to be held accountable for, yeah. is suddenly labeled as an anti-Semite. It's, it's tricky because the International Charities Commission uh, actually did it. An investigation into this as well. What actually is anti-Semitism? And I, I forget his name. My apologies, but there is a, a writer in the Telegraph here in the UK who who did a, a piece on this, and he, he talks about the fact that there are there was actually a a, a a terminology coined because previously it was found in the investigation that there is not 
a terminology to define what anti-Semitism is. So what they came up with in a nutshell has a clause. And the clause also says that anything that may challenge certain aspects of Israeli policy could also be deemed as anti-Semitism. But it's kept really vague. So people are now treading on eggshells, generally speaking. They don't know. What is it that I need to say and how far can I actually go in terms of really criticizing things in a just way before someone gets up and says, hey, that's anti-Semitic. So this is the challenge that people are now facing. Absolutely. Let's get some guidance on uh, on all of these challenging questions on um, uh, from a first guest, Professor John Quigley, who is a professor of law at the Moritz College of Law at the Ohio State University, where he's the President's Club's professor of law. Aslam alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor, for, for joining us. Um, let me start by asking you, um, do you think ICC should be allowed to take up the investigation into war crimes in the Middle East in the context of the Hamas-Israel war? Well, certainly it should. Um, the ICC is already uh, seized of... Uh, the Palestine issue, um, and the prosecutor has indicated that uh, he is investigating uh, with respect to what is going on in, in Gaza. Um, it's not clear exactly what he's doing, but but uh, he, he is in principle uh, investigating. And clearly what is transpiring um constitutes war crimes and and is worthy of investigation. Uh, Professor, does the ICC have jurisdiction? Yes, the ICC has jurisdiction based on the fact that Palestine is a party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And under the statute, the court has jurisdiction if an act occurs in the territory of a state that is a party um, and the acts in question occur on the territory of, of, uh, of Palestine, the court has already uh, determined that Gaza is part of the territory of Palestine. Hmm. Okay, that's 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 kind of what I think is is what's understood. And I, Professor, I have a question. I, I I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but I may have read somewhere that although the ICC is independent to the UN, however, the UN may have a certain article or legislation that they can invoke to give backing to the ICC to investigate almost practically wherever they deem fit, regardless of the fact if they are an attending party of the ICC. Is that something that exists? Yes, this is provided by Articles 12 and 13 of the Rome Statute, uh, under which the Security Council can refer a matter to the International Criminal Court, um, even if the acts in question occur in a state that is not a party to the Mm. Rome statute. Wow. So my next, I think, natural question would be, has that happened yet? And if not, would it happen? It has not happened yet. Um, 
at present, it would uh, appear that it's not likely to happen. There has been no effort to take that matter hmm. into the Security Council. Okay. Um, at, at present, it, and, it seems... Hmm. Well, who, yeah. who would be responsible to take that initiative? Well, any member of the Security Council. Okay. Okay. So I, I guess the next uh, <clears throat> logical question, Professor, would be that um, Palestine, we've established, is, is, a, is a member as per the Rome Institute, but Israel is not. So what does that actually mean in practical mm. terms for the investigation? Well, it, it doesn't affect the investigation. Um, the, the investigation can continue given the fact that the... Um, uh, state of Palestine is a, a party. Um, it might affect the gaining of custody over anyone who is um, uh, indicted by the International Criminal Court. Uh, under the Rome Statute, states that are party have an obligation to surrender a person hmm. uh, who is sought by the International Criminal Court. So Israel would not have that obligation, uh, and that would complicate the gaining of custody. Hmm. Under international law, uh, are the rulings of ICC mandatory? Well, they are mandatory on states that are are party, right. uh, and they and the ICC you know has the uh, the right to engage in whatever is called for by the by the the treaty hmm. so so then you know if i uh, if i can ask this question in, in 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 rather plain language what's what's the fun in all this i mean what is the point of doing this investigation spending millions maybe on it when um Israel is out of ICC jurisdiction, and ICC clearly will not be able to implement anything with Israel in terms of actual custody of individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a fair question. Um, but there are several uh, answers to that. <laughs> One is that it would put the imprimatur of illegality uh, on what is occurring. Um, uh, and as we've seen, there has been pressure on uh, Israel from a number of, of directions. Um, this would, would be an addition to that. Um, secondly, for anyone who is under indictment, um, uh, it would mean that they could not uh, uh, travel to any state that is a party to the Rome Statute uh, without fear of, of being uh, arrested. Oh, okay. That changes things a little bit, potentially. Okay. And so there's, there's that, what you just mentioned, and what we did discuss previously in Article 12. Theoretically speaking, if the UN was to engage with that and there was an investigation done and someone was found guilty of a crime, through Article 12, would 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 the custody or the the whatever they come up with would that still not be binding or would that change things well the uh, uh, well let me, let me go back a minute there couldn't be a conviction unless the person 
is actually surrendered or surrenders voluntarily. Okay. The court doesn't try anyone okay. in absentia. The court does, however, uh, issue an arrest warrant, as it has done in regard to the president of Russia. Correct. Um, uh, and that triggers the obligation to uh, to uh, surrender. Okay. So how do you see this playing out, Professor, then, in the next um, few weeks and months? Uh, what um, do you expect a formal indictment uh, from the ICC, uh, you know, with, uh, within the next few months? You know, that remains to be seen. Uh, the prosecutor has been a, a bit uh, unclear on his intentions, um, but the, the evidence would seem clearly to point in the direction uh, of, of some uh, indictments. Uh, he, he has indicated that he is investigating Hamas. There are, are, are reasons to believe that there sh- would be an indictment of, of certain leaders of Hamas uh, for hostage-taking, which is prohibited under the Rome Statute. Uh, the other possibility outside the ICC is that a state could sue Israel in the International Court of Justice. Mm-hmm. That would be quite a different proceeding, uh, but, but that is something that, uh, that is being explored by a, a number of, of states, oh. uh, including the Organization of the Islamic, uh, Islamic Cooperation. Okay, I mean, that's something that I wanted to ask anyway. I mean, generally speaking, people are a bit anxious, thinking, okay, the UN isn't really doing much. If the ICC is doing much, are they actually going to be able to do it? And you've just highlighted some other avenues, potential avenues of, of how else uh, things could could be done. Is there anything else that people could know about that might open the scope of dialogue and, and, the, and the, the scope of approach when it comes to the situation? Well, I think these these two, the ICC and the ICJ, are the two main international legal mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. more could be done through the uh, Security Council um, as the situation worsens, that as it becomes more clear that that uh, uh, genocide is being committed. Uh, it may be that the United States would alter its position and, and would. Uh, would no longer veto. <laughs> okay. Um, is Israel a signatory to ICJ? Uh, I'm sorry? Uh, does Israel come under the jurisdiction of oh, okay. International Court of Justice? Y- yes, yes, it does. Um, Israel is a party to the Genocide Convention. A case would be brought under the Genocide uh, Convention. Uh, it could be brought by any state that itself is a party to the Genocide Convention. Uh, and uh, the Genocide Convention states explicitly that in the case of a dispute over the commission of genocide, uh, ju- the International Court of Justice would have jurisdiction. Um, and, and just for understanding and also uh, for context as well. So, um, if 
um, at all, ICJ is able to uh, to investigate. If, you know, firstly, a state actually goes to ICJ, ICJ, ICJ investigates and issues um, a, and makes a decision. Uh, can that decision be challenged again uh, in somewhere like uh, the Security Council, where you know it could be vetoed out? Uh, no. Once the court issues a judgment, uh, that judgment is <clears throat> binding uh, on states that are members of the United Nations. That's an obligation uh, of membership of the United Nations. Wow. Okay. What, what, what sort of? Uh, can you give us maybe an example? Um, any precedents that uh, over the last fifty years or so of cases that would have successfully been dealt with at ICJ and 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 people really brought to justice? Um, well, it, it's to bring a state to justice. Um, uh, when you say people, <laughs> uh, that that's what's done in the international. A criminal uh, court, um, but but there have been a number of of international disputes uh, where the uh, the matter has gone to the international court of justice and, and and where the parties have complied sometimes reluctantly, uh, but have complied with the outcome. Uh, uh- Please remind me the um, the issue of the the concrete wall that was uh, built by Israel to divide the the West Bank uh, with its own territory. That was challenged in in ICJ, and ICJ did um, issue uh, uh, did make a decision on it. Am I am I correct to say that? Yes, yes, you have that quite correctly. Um, that was what is called an advisory opinion. Right. Uh, it, it had been requested by the General Assembly, uh, so that's not deemed to be binding in a technical sense, uh, but it is a statement by the court of what is required under international law. Um, and to that extent, uh, it, it reflects an opinion of, of what is legally required by Israel, uh, namely, in that case, the destruction of the wall. Right. So um, to to fully sort of understand the situation then, so you said that a state could uh, uh, could be held to account. What does that practically mean? Um, so if, if, let's say, the Palestinian state, uh, for argument's sake, is um, uh, is then held to be guilty of, um, or Hamas is, is held to be guilty of the um, uh, of the kidnappings. What happens next? What what's the repercussion of that? Uh, well, well, that's something that would be done by the ICC, um, and there would be an obligation. Uh, on the part of of Palestine as a state party uh, to surrender those persons. Okay, right. Okay, so IC, ICJ issues a decision and uh, and then it holds the state accountable, and then ICC then goes ahead and identifies the individuals who were responsible and and holds them to account. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. The ICC is a criminal court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it applies 
to the acts of individual uh, persons. Right. Okay. The last sort of um, a, a question on practicality. Um, how long does it usually take for ICJ and ICC investigations? I mean, I, I remember, for example, uh, I was growing up at that time, the investigation around uh, 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 the massacre in uh, Sarajevo, I think it was, um, or, or, or uh, generally by the Serbs. And that took forever. Uh, so, you know, what sort of time frames are we, uh, are, can we be potentially looking at here? Well, it, it's hard to say. I mean, in the case of the arrest warrant against the president of Russia, that was issued quite uh, expeditiously. Um, uh, with regard to the International Court of Justice, then, um, you're correct that those cases can drag on for several years. However, the court can issue an injunctive order uh, within a few days or, or weeks, um, and, and that's what one would expect in in the case of uh, a case of, of a filing in regard to Gaza. The court would uh, be asked to issue an order uh, of that type, uh, and would hold hearings and would probably you know rule within several weeks. How tricky do you think? Uh, <clears throat> this whole situation becomes in view of what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has publicly stated that, number one, Israel will fight this, this case with all its might. And number two, it's anti-Semitic on the part of ICC to even think about conducting an investigation. So bringing that anti-Semitic argument into the whole thing, how, how much more difficult does this situation then become for ICC? Well, it, it may create a public relations issue for the ICC, mm. but, but I don't think that the court is going to be uh, deterred by the fact that, that Mr. Netanyahu is characterizing an investigation as being anti-Semitic. Do you expect then, you know, looking at the, you know, real politic, um, uh, and uh, the very practical situation all around us, um, do you actually think that there will be movement on this in the next few weeks and months? Um, it, it's very hard to say, actually. Mm. I mean, a number of states uh, have said that what Israel is doing constitutes genocide. Um, that creates a, a basis for them to file a suit um, against Israel. Um, and I think that question is being explored, but, but uh, whether it will come to fruition uh, is very hard to say. Professor John Quigley, thank you so very much. This was uh, very enlightening. Um, we have learned so much, and I'm sure our, our um, listeners have indeed. Really appreciate your time. Have a lovely weekend ahead, and peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was Professor John Quigley, who is a professor of law at the Moritz College of Law at the Ohio State University, where he is the President's Club Professor of mm. Law.
Interesting discussion. There. Conversation wasn't as gloomy as I thought it'd be, to be honest. Yeah. A lot of information to unpack, but there is still a lot of avenues that can still be explored. And we have to put emphasis on the word can. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I, I think to sum up what, uh, what Professor was saying there is, number one, ICC does have some teeth. Mm, um, yeah. it, it, it really depends whether, uh, again, considering realpolitik, considering the global, uh, the international uh, scenario, uh, as well as support for Israel, whether that will, um, whether they will actually show their teeth. Uh, both, uh, for both parties, I think, yeah, it goes for, uh, for Hamas as well, which conducted an illegal act by kidnapping innocent people and innocent civilians, mm. uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, horrific um, and the horrific things and the carnage that's actually, uh, and that's not my words, that's yeah. the, these are the words of United mm. Nations heads, uh, the utter carnage that's actually going I, on I, in Gaza. It's not even just countries. I mean, you've got the International Committee of the Red Cross They're saying the instructions issued by the Israeli authorities for the population of Gaza City to immediately leave their homes, coupled with the complete siege, explicitly denying them food, water and electricity are not compatible with international humanitarian law. Amnesty International echoing that, saying documented unlawful Israeli attacks, including indiscriminate attacks, which cause mass civilian casualties and must be investigated as war crimes. They're calling it out. They're saying that this needs to be done. Mm. Then you've got the Human Rights Watch saying that multiple war crimes have been done and continue to be committed in Israel and Palestine with grave concerns that Israeli forces and Palestinian armed groups are carrying out unlawful, indiscriminate attacks harming civilians. So it's a number of bodies, like a professor even said, pressure is being put on the table from different avenues. But there are still some avenues that can still be explored, least of them, which he mentioned to be through the ICJ and also through Article 12 of the UN. Which makes me wonder, actually, quite genuinely, when the UN was vetoed, why didn't they come to to think about this? And I, I don't know. No, no. So I think that actually is the trickiest part over here, because if if a resolution like that actually is brought into this, and probably that's why it hasn't, because you it think will, it will get vetoed, it'll it'll immediately get vetoed. It'll it'll be shot down. It'll be shot down by by both the US hmm. and probably Britain as well. Yeah. Because. Um, Again, you know, if if UK and the US are not even fully backing a ceasefire, will they back a formal investigation, which Israeli it's, prime minister has on record been saying is they will fight with their might? The thing is that you mentioned that, uh, and it's interesting because in 2021, it wasn't just Netanyahu who spoke out against the investigation. The UK also issued, issued a statement, not to the same strength, yeah. but they, they felt that this was an attack on one of their allies. Hmm. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement to be made about an investigation being done by the ICC. So yeah, you are right in part that, wow, it's it's a bit deflating to, to kind of be aware of this situation. So the real question, Daniel, again is after we, what we've just learned, what, what is the most viable way forward? I think the most viable way forward, as um, as Professor Quigley was saying, is is for ICC, number one, to continue its investigation, whether Regardless. or not Israel is part of uh, within the jurisdiction doesn't matter doesn't apply it yeah. can still investigate it can still do it. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, it can also indict individuals. Mm. And that also creates some pressure. It does, yeah. I think from a very practical point of view, and I was having this discussion with another friend uh, the other day as well. I think from a very practical point of view, the other thing that an investigation, an active investigation by a very de jure international organization like this does is that if not future convictions, it informs current behavior. So it might actually help with, uh, although I think very little evidence to, mm. to, to, to support that, yeah. but, but in terms of the actual bombings of, of Gaza at the moment, uh, which seems continue to be indiscriminate, they just might, you know, something like this may have... Uh, Pressure tactics. Correct, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's at the very, that's why I'm a full supporter of the fact that regardless of whether it will achieve 100, I think it was actually... If I'm not mistaken, His Holiness, yes, it was him, who recently informed some youth actually about this. Uh, when it was asked about certain efforts towards making a change in this issue, and his response was, we, we try what we try. We won't always achieve 100%, mm. but that doesn't mean you don't try. Correct. You might achieve 50%, you might achieve 20%, but that's yeah. still a step forward. And that's why I think that regardless of everything that we've learned, the ICC must and will go forward at the very least, if it's 10%, then that's pressure tactics, and that's what it is. And that's also a step forward. And as Professor was saying, there are many different organizations that are now beginning to stand up and make a voice against it. There's also the humanitarian side of it, which gives people hope as well. Okay, there's legislation, but there are also charities on the ground as well that are making sure that they can do whatever it takes and whatever they can. And I, I think that it's not just on the West Bank and Gaza side that there are charities. There are even charities on the Israeli side. Yes. I think there was one called, um, I forget its name now, but they are also facilitating Gazans with medical aid and humanitarian aid as the best they can. So this also gives us a bit of hope into the situation. Absolutely, it does. And I think you're, you're as a believer also, I think um, we are taught to always keep trying. I think this is exactly what uh, His Holiness has been um, asking us to do as well, continue to pray, continue to write to our MPs, continue to write to um, to anybody we know uh, mm -hmm. has any influence to actually at least demand a ceasefire. I think that is at the very, I, I think that probably mm. is, uh, to my mind, the least humane thing to do at the moment. Yeah, I mean... It, to, it, to ask for a ceasefire. And, and to my mind, it is such a no-brainer. I don't know why it has become such a big issue and why it is it's um, always become a you, controversial you, issue. You will get people who argue that, hey, and I'm talking from a very kind of pro-Israeli kind of almost Zionist side, let's put it that way. Mm. You have people who argue that allowing a ceasefire will allow people and organizations that come out to recuperate, to regenerate, etc., etc. And then you have people like Donald Trump, whose videos <laughs> are resurfacing now from a couple of years back, mm. saying that, oh, I met with Abbas, mm. I met with Netanyahu, and here's what I came to my conclusion, that Abbas was like a father, and what he and he seemed like he really, really wanted a deal. He really wanted a solution. He really wanted to come to some kind of agreement. And this is something that I, I, I sat with him for a very long time, and this is what I felt like. And then Trump carried on to say that I then sat with Netanyahu for three minutes, and he calls him Bibi. He said, after sitting with Bibi for three minutes, I turned around and asked him, Bibi, you don't want you don't want to do it, do you? Mm. And he responded by saying, uh, uh, and Trump says, I was of the impression that it's the Palestinians that are impossible to deal with mm. and that they will do anything it takes to stop any kind of agreement being formed. I was completely misinformed on that. This is Trump back then. 
and and yet he he can and yet, to, to we know what he did. We yeah. know what people do, and I, I yeah. think politicians are politicians, but they will also speak the truth when they need it too. Mm. And this is one thing which is there. It's 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 absolutely there. And further to the point, he actually even said that he thinks a deal can be made. It can be made provided there's the right people in place to do it. But he emphasized it will ultimately fall on Israel to make the decision if they want to make the deal. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that there was actually a military solution to anything of the sort? Did we succeed in Afghanistan? Did we succeed in Northern Ireland? Mm. Did we not eventually have to sit down, all the parties sit down... And dialogue anyway. And, and exactly, <laughs> find a political solution yeah. to this. And the, and my last point would be, you know, you, you can try and eliminate Hamas mm. all you want. Mm. How do you kill an idea? I think this is uh, on Piers Morgan's show. It was We've had a couple of Muslim representatives on, on that show now. Right. Uh, one of them, Hijab, spoke about this. Right. You can you can get rid of Hamas. Tomorrow you'll have 10 more. Yeah. So, yeah, and I don't think this just, this just talks about the current war on ideology. It's, uh, there are many on Twitter that I see as well, where you see videos of, of children, obviously innocent. And there are those who would argue that the anger and the feeling of retribution that will be inspired within the hearts of those innocent civilians mm. could quite possibly translate when they grow up into an act of revenge. And this is how they would put it. So what are you creating? Are you killing the people who are a quote-unquote threat to you? Or are you creating a threat to you? So this is an argument which kind of echoes what I think you're trying to say. War ultimately isn't going to solve anything. As, as you said it in the beginning, dialogue is the preferred mechanism as Professor's always been talking about it. He said there's many mechanisms. This is the best mechanism. The ICC, the ICJ are the best mechanism because they fall within the law. They fall within dialogue. And that's the way you want to do it. And it is a shame that we are still hearing people who are trying to argument the opposite. Hey, let's not have a ceasefire. Hey, let's continue. They've got blood on their hands. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I, absolutely. Who? I, I cannot agree more. Absolutely. If you're not supporting uh, a ceasefire at this point, I mean, you've really it's, got to think and you've got to, got to reflect as it, what, it, what it, is it that you're It is you're like trying. that. Because, you, you know, your actions are leading to the killing of babies, children, innocent women. Um, almost 20,000 people have been wow, killed. Wow. According to the United Nations, 70% of them are women and children. If we were to assume hmm. that all of the others are all of the men uh, or the 30% are Hamas terrorists, which they are not. But even if we assume that, you know, we're still talking about 14,000 totally innocent who had nothing to do with this and who should not be targeted at all. I mean, I, I, let me yeah. quote another statistic here. Go for it. Just to, just to give this some context. Um, in the entire, this is, this is um, from one of the Syrian correspondents um, that I was listening to the other day. And she said that in the entire 20 years, of the Afghanistan war, some 11,000 people were killed. Some 11,000 civilians mm. were killed. In the last two months, wow. 14,000 civilians, exactly. at least 14,000 civilians have been killed. It's not just deaths as well. And we know. Absolutely. It's life-changing in injuries as well. I mean, uh, there have been so many amputations. I mean, there's, there's, been, there's injuries. There's, no, not to mention the fact that they've run out of most of the painkillers. They've run out of 
most of the anesthetics. But we also have things like cholera. We have things like diseases which are, you know, going to be destructive, not just now, but to continue. Uh, this is things that we perhaps don't talk about that much, but the people that are on the ground are realizing it, uh, obviously, day to day. This is quite, quite catastrophic. And I think with the ICC and the ICJ, we've, we've spoken about, obviously, them getting to a potential point of convicting and, you know, trying to find out who's responsible. And I think that's probably a, a, a further step. At the very least, if the ICC can investigate and go through the information and the misinformation and the propaganda and discern what is truth, what is a fact, that would be a huge achievement. Because then you stand on the premise of facts. And what we have right now, every single debate that you listen to online, anywhere you go, people are talking about things for which we are not even sure of right now. Because only really time will tell mm. what the facts are. You mentioned the Iraq war, the Afghanistan mm. war. We're really only finding out now Correct. what happened. So ICC can and the ICJ can accelerate that. Well, that's what they can do. They can accelerate the fact-finding mission because the quicker we can do that, okay, criminal court, they can send an arrest warrant around, but the, the, the first thing we can do is we can change the narrative. We can change the perspective of people on the ground. In reality, this is what happened. Now let's talk. Now let's hold your debates because now we're holding it on fact. We're holding it on a solid premise. So when you have people like, again, Piers Morgan, and I, I won't say it either way to him, you have facts that are presented in their shows against Hamas, against the IDF, and some of them are unverified. What do you do with that? There's nothing you can really do. We had initially the 7th of October attack, people taking hostages, people being killed. 40 beheaded babies. Yeah. Only then for them to news then be released that an IDF Apache helicopter <laughs> was also involved in that attack. <laughs> killing so many people in a car park. What else do we still need to discover? And the ICC can really, really do that. Absolutely. We're coming towards the the end of this hour. Uh, let's just maybe spend some, uh, you know, a few minutes um, and use your expertise, Imam Kamar, um, on talking about what are the responsibilities of the different parties in a war Within a within an Islamic concept, so if we a have war, to talk about this, yeah, if a war does happen, what responsibilities does Islam fairly put on the I, I, I shoulders would, of yeah. the war? I would say you mentioned if a war does happen, there's there's already a a party that claims to be Muslim hmm. in this in this call it you want to call it a conflict, call it a conflict, call it a war, call it a war, call it a battle. Yeah. And some call it a genocide. Some call it freedom fighting. Whatever, whatever. You, I don't care. The point is this. Like I said, we at the moment, as it stands, and we have to be brutally honest about this, we don't have the facts. Who has done what? Like I said, even on the 7th of October, where a lot of people argue it started, it did not start, but where a lot of people woke up, let's put it that way. We don't even know what happened on that day yet. Mm. But we have to assume some things. Mm. We have to assume that Either party, it could be Hamas, it could be the IDF, hostages could have been taken. Mm. Women could have been killed. Children could have been killed. They could have been mutilated. They could have been disrespected. Is any of this permissible, theoretically, in an Islamically fun, oh, Islamic fronted warfare? Mm. 
No. <laughs> Quite simply, no. And the reason why I say theoretically is this, is because, like I said, we don't have the facts. So what that means is, is that if there is a group, whether they're Muslim, whether they're not, they're not Muslim, and they are doing this, even if they are Muslim, we must condemn them. Even if they are Muslim, we must condemn it. And that's why when you see on these shows and podcasts and things like that, you will have an array of presenters, a lot of Muslim presenters, who will be stuck between the lines. They're, they're kind of emotionally attached to the topic. Where we are very clear on this. And we, we, we are very clear on this, that if it even is a Muslim, they may be our brothers in faith, quote-unquote. They are equally accountable for any of the aforementioned crimes if they do them. And of course... The opposite party is as well. We've spoken about these heinous crimes, like murder, rape, mutilation. Of course, I mean, you'd expect that to be wrong. I mean, quite frankly, you would. But it's, Islam doesn't even start there. We're talking about plant life, animal life. The welfare or even these things Islam prohibits, prohibits in warfare, you must not damage this. You must not damage the crops. You must not damage their cultivation. And you know what's so ironic about this? The ir- irony is that I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago where a person had a picture of a dying dog in Israel and it was being taken to the vet and they were taking care of it. In contrast, they posted a picture of a dying child in Gaza and they didn't have anything for the child. And they said, wow, look at this. Here's the moral. Here's the moral army taking care of it and they respect a dog more than a human being. Whereas, of course, Islam would never allow for such a thing. Mm. So we have to take this into, into contrast. Like I said, it's not just about the deaths right now. Uh, the, the, the other things that are prohibited in, in, uh, in, in some warfare are obviously besides attacking civilians mm. it's civilian infrastructure mm. and I think there's already been a debate in this in the wider spectrum already not just Muslims all of the organisations that we've just spoken about are furious that schools and hospitals are being attacked yeah. all in the name of some tunnels which whenever the picture is released we always see the top of it we never see the insides of it mm. and there's also speculation that Israel built those tunnels themselves Hmm. There's also images that I just saw. No, it's 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 a fact. Uh, under the uh, the hospital, especially yeah, uh, the Al Shifa hospital. That's right. Ehud Barak actually on yeah, uh, on, on television so confirmed that you have this. You have this, and what you have also is today images being released. I mean, this, the images have been around for a while, and you must have seen them as well. Hmm. Where now that there is a surrender there in the area, there's a lot of again quote unquote Hamas members who have surrendered. They've got their tops off. They've apparently surrendered their weapons, which we've never seen. And they're being hosted off to God knows where. Mm. Today, people have investigated independently those images to locate and identify who, who are these people. And they're finding that a majority of them are servicemen and doctors from the hospitals themselves. Yeah. What, what on earth are you doing? Some are even journalists. Absolutely absurd. And... Uh, Kudos, by the way, you mentioned journalists. Kudos to them. Yeah, absolutely. You know what yeah. I mean? Because they are the real heroes here. I mean, I, I, yeah, I shouldn't say real heroes here, but they're one of the heroes here. Um, and especially if you if you think about the fact that 82 of them have been killed. That was my last count, and it changes wow, every wow, day. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, you you have, and this is kind of what's changed this time for me personally. I'm, I'm still, 
you know, I was or maybe I was a bit too young uh, growing up to see the entirety of this. But now I feel like even though I am still young, comparatively to, let's say, 2021, at least, there has been a huge change in the way the narrative and propaganda is being tackled online. And we have the ICC, we have the U and we have the ICJ and they're doing a lot of what they can do. I feel like off the grid, unofficially, social media, these advocates, these journalists have done perhaps, this is my personal opinion, even more. Even more. An immeasurable amount. They are the eyes and ears of the world. They're not commissioned. They're not, they're not courts. They're nothing. They're just risking their, their own lives out mm. there for this. And, and it's really, you know, God bless them, it's paying off. Because what it is, is that they, they are posting the truth and you cannot mm. deny it. And it's in such sheer number. Mm. I, I remember talking about this last time as well, that to the point that for the first time, the Israeli Public Affairs Committee is having to invest roughly 21 million pounds, dollars, sorry, just on YouTube, on ads to mm. combat the narrative. This never happened before. They're having to actually pay people to create videos. They're having to pay people to attend protests. I don't know if you saw about that as well. $250 they're paying to each university student to go and attend protests in the US. Really? Why? Why are they having to do this? Because you've got, for, for almost the first time, people on the ground that are in such a majority, relentlessly, not allowing for there to be silence on the side of the Palestinians everywhere you go and this is Muslims this is Jews yeah also Jews oh, many humanitarians Jews. absolutely many Jews hats uh, off to them as well it's just that's why this time yes the casualties are, are greater the the kind of change in narrative is also greater I don't think that Israel would be able to recover from this in their integrity that they may have hoped to do and at least we can we can vouch on this for the very minimum. Now, what we know from an Islamic perspective is this: as as as, as His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Surahmud has been saying, is continue to say we are the, we are the source of reminder, we are the source of warning to those who transgress. That's our job. Your job is to tell them that what you're doing is wrong, and to continue to relentlessly do that and never allow yourself to be quiet on that. Now, I, there's only one or two options: either they will listen to it, they will take heed to it. Yeah, they'll be like, okay, sorry, we did wrong. Or someone like, you know, the ICC might potentially be able to force them otherwise. Or no matter what transgressor it is, we know one thing from the Quran. If people don't learn, God teaches them. And we hope that that day never comes because Islam, we want there to be reformation. We want there to be change. change. But the faith of the Muslims is ultimately on God. We're going to discuss this in the next episode. Why is it? Why on earth is it that these Palestinians, these Gazans, they're losing their, their wives, their mothers, their fathers, their children. And that should, and I, I know that it, a lot of people have argued, make, when they watch these videos, they're like, it makes us lose faith in God. Mm. Where is God? How is it on earth that the people that are actually going through it are increasing in faith? Mm. What is it that they know? What is it that they've got their eyes on? Mm-hmm. That is kind of so much different to the entire conversation that we've just had. Correct. They don't have their eyes on the ICC. Yeah. They don't have their eyes on the UN. They don't care about that. Mm. They've got their eyes on something much greater, much more powerful. Right. So we're going to talk about that in roughly, I think, a couple of minutes. And we've yes. got a guest for that as well. 
Excellent. Yes. Let me end this segment by quoting from the Holy Quran. In chapter 4, verse 136, the Holy Quran, God says, O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for Allah, even though it be against yourself or against parents and kindred. Whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them than both. Um, Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, follow not, follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. Thank you very much for joining us for this hour. We will now be heading to the five o'clock news. And when we come back, we will talk about our next topic, which is about a call to Islam. Do stay tuned. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. Remember, this is a live show, so you can call us in 0208 or you can tweet to us, Voice of Islam UK, or drop us a DM on Instagram, also at Voice of Islam UK. Before we took a break, Daniel, we mentioned, yes, there's the ICC, there's the UN, there's all these authorities. Yeah. There's a higher authority, though. Absolutely. That the Palestinians and the Gazans are proving to the world that they have faith in him. Okay. And that's Allah, the Almighty. How on earth, though, are they doing this? And they're gonna, how are they pulling this off? And what kind of impact is it having around the world? And more importantly, what kind of impact is it having on you at home? Let us know. Because personally speaking, Daniel, I've seen, obviously, there's a lot of kind of grotesque uh, imagery online where we've spoken about that in the past. Uh, a lot of you know people being killed and it's just not... A very distressing sight to see. In the same picture, on the other hand, you have people like, and I'm sure everyone's seen it, the father of Reem, who, a very, very faithful man, you can see from his eyes, he's just lost his daughter yeah. and, and, and his son. And, you know, he's smiling and he's caressing his daughter's face, oh, Reem. And just getting them ready for their burial. But you see from his face, no distress, Absolutely. no panic. Incredible. No, not even anger. And, you know, he was interviewed later about about this. And and the words and the remarks, I think that everybody who has this. Everybody has a grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. Would, would, would just remember. Uh, so th these kinds of things are kind of what we're talking about right now. Uh, there are those as well who have not lost children. They lost their parents, for example. There are those who lost their brothers. I've seen videos where a, a youngster loses his brother and he's telling his other brother, stay firm. He's gone to paradise. He's with the Most High and he's also smiling. And I'm on social media a lot. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and I'm beginning to see in the comments of these videos, mm -hmm. lots and lots of comments of people saying, I don't know much about the Israel-Palestine conflict. I don't, I don't know mm. much about this, politically, historically speaking. Mm. But one thing that I'm really curious about... Where do you get your strength from? Is where they get their strength from. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And we want to find out about, number one, if there's anybody who's listening right now knows of someone who's, who's able to relate to this, or if you want to let us know how it's actually inspired you. Like I said, live call. 
0208687878 is the number to call. We're seeing here that as Hazrat Ali radiallahu anhu, who is the fourth caliph of Islam, he said that Islam is like a body and the head of Islam is patience. And what he basically said is that patient, uh, Iman or faith without patience is like a head without its body. It cannot, they cannot survive. So these Palestinians and Ghazans, they are showing some powerful patience, some powerful sabr right now. And that is part and parcel of their faith. This is not something that they've conjured up relative of their faith. This is something which is part and parcel of their faith, which is Islam, which is why so many people are now beginning to become curious about Islam. You have in the workplace here in the UK, you have these wellness sessions. Uh, employers are now starting to bring in during your break, yeah, 15 minute wellness session. You just sit there and you kind of contemplate and you think about, and it's supposed to increase your resilience, mental resilience. And then on the other hand, you, you see these, these people who, who don't have, forget wellness sessions, that they don't even have food at the moment. Mm. And you're kind of seeing what kind of resilience they're showing. So that's why people are curious. Absolutely. And um, let's talk to one of them, actually. Um, so our first guest for this hour is Eric, Eric Merchant, who was born and raised in Tennessee in southern U.S. He was raised in a Baptist Christian household and is now studying the Holy Quran for the first time. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hey, how's it going? Um, Eric, thank you so very much for uh, uh, for joining us. Um, so tell us uh, maybe a, a little bit about yourself. So you grew up in uh, um, in southern U.S., uh, the so-called Bible Belt, in a Baptist Christian household. What drew you to towards the Holy Quran? Uh, yeah, I grew up in the southern U.S., uh, I was in third grade when 9-11 happened, so for most of my adult life, I've been exposed to a lot of Islamophobia, and um, I left the church when I was a teenager. Um, there were contradictions and things. Uh, the church in America, in my opinion, is very laden with hypocrites and things like that. It's very hard for somebody to look at that objectively and continue down that path. Um, you have a lot of young people in the United States leaving the church, but for the last you know decade plus, I've just been kind of wandering. Um, and then October seventh happened, and I, I'm not saying the conflict doesn't extend to before then, but that happened. And uh, as I was reading, watching more, uh, I saw the video of uh, Khaled uh, and Reem, mm -hmm. and so many other videos where. Oh, sorry, that's hard to talk about. Uh, where parents were, were, you know, holding up their children, you know, pleading to the world for them to listen, but also thanking God. And that was a concept that I simultaneously didn't understand and couldn't believe that I was seeing, I guess, wow. from my frame of reference. Um, wow. And so uh, there, was a, there was a call for a general strike about a month ago, um, and where I live is actually very full of Israel supporters and Zionist supporters. So I didn't feel comfortable protesting, um, and so instead I went to my local mosque, uh, had conversations with them, and wanted to deconstruct some of that Islamophobia that I was talking about. And I ended up being given a Quran, and now I am 
I think I'm in Sura 26, I think. Wow. Wow, Eric, that's already what you already told us. I know you've, you've kind of summarized it and it's very brief, but it's just very powerful in, in the way that you've explained it. And you mentioned that for, for 12 years, you described it as if you were, were wondering. And I, I think that's also really profound. There may be a lot of people out there right now who may be somewhat on, a, on, a, on that kind of journey where they find themselves almost wondering. Um, and and you, you, alhamdulillah, you know, you've, you've now come across something. What yeah. would you say, actually, to, to, to people who are perhaps in that phase? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the best way that I can put it is after I started reading the Quran as a kind of a project for myself to, like I said, de- deconstruct a lot of Islamophobia that Americans are inundated with um, a lot throughout our lives and a lot of times without even realizing it. Mm. And as I was reading, um, there's so many verses in the Quran that talk about the signs of God and the signs of Allah, and uh, if you pay attention, you can see them. Um, And over the last, like I said, for the last 10 years, I've been wandering, but over the last three to five, I started trying to um, figure out who I was, figure out what my place in the world was, Mm -hmm. and... As I've read the Quran and it's talked about the signs and all of that, I've started, <laughs> I've started connecting dots to, um, mm. to e- even to the point to where I was in a place where I could pick up the Quran. Um, mm. If you were to be talking to me five, ten years ago, I wouldn't have even been in a place where I would pick up a holy text of anyone's Boy. and give it wow. a chance. Um, but seeing the Palestinians, seeing their level of faith, I had to know for myself what that was mm. about. So. Wow. For people that are out there wandering, I think, if nothing else, the Quran reading it uh, helps solidify parts of myself that I've been working on for years now, mm. you know, valuing mm. patience, valuing compassion, valuing uh, justice, all these different things the Quran wow. teaches us are important for believers. Mm. I think that was, even even if at the end of this I don't take my shahada, which I probably will end up doing, but even if I don't <laughs> do that at the end of this, I've... I've learned so much and solidified so much mm. of the person I was trying to become just by reading the Quran right. and trying to learn from it. So. I, I really value your journey. And I think, if, like you've said it, if nothing else, I think what the message your journey is sending to, to, for, me, so for someone like me is that, you know what, it's, it's, not, it's not a terrible thing to wonder. It's okay to actually yeah. wonder and try and find who you are. And that takes a lot of courage. And, and courage is the first step. Uh, and that leads on to things. And I think that, that people can probably find hope in, in, in this. I think this is what I, I've personally learned from what you've just told me. And you've also mentioned that you've also learned from, and we all have, from the resilience of the Palestinian people. Of course, you, you mentioned how it, it kind of almost shock factors you. That what, what on earth is it that, that they possess? Uh, so tell us a little bit yeah. about that as well. Um, you obviously turned to the Quran, you reflected on that and kind of saw how maybe how they live through that. How did that kind of inspire you and, and increase your understanding? Yeah, I think when I tried to do that, um, the general strike that I talked about, which was not the big one that mm-hmm. Basan and Mataz and others have posted about, there was a smaller one that I'm sure not that many people did. But during that, I really wanted to find a way to impact something. And I think Mansoor, I believe is his name, had been talking about, you know, educate yourself on Islam. Mm. And as I kept watching all the videos of, you know, just these awful things happening and still 
every time you would watch a video, you would still see the people in Palestine praising God, thanking mm. God, in spite of, from yeah. my perspective, on hell on earth. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me, it was, it was seeing that, and I'm someone who, a lot of times, I want to understand the why. So seeing that, mm. I just kept having this nagging feeling of like, what is, what is in the the Quran that has these these people able to experience these things yeah. and still hold on to faith you know you're right I mean? and you you also mentioned this kind of it's like hell on earth for them and and eric for me personally what i, I kind of i'm realizing as well by looking at them as well it makes me personally realize that we don't first of all obviously don't have it that bad but it kind of gives you this yeah. essence that they were never in it for the material purpose in the first place and you know even yeah. though they don't have it it's not really changed their contentment. And that also for me would be, oh, be like, wow, like what? How? Because obviously we are a very materialistic world. So that's something that yeah. I, I feel like a lot of people perhaps also look towards. Um, but with regards to your journey, looking into the Quran, and I feel like that's something that's really driven your journey. Are there any particular mm-hmm. passages or teachings that have resonated with you, uh, whether it's the Palestinian resilience or if it's something else that it generally that struck you uh, on your journey so far? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things. Um, just notes about the Quran that people who haven't read it probably don't know. Um, something that surprised me, and like I said, I'm only through Surah 25. I've seen the name Moses and Jesus more than I have <laughs> the Prophet Muhammad. You know what I mean? Like exponentially yeah. more. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of things when you read it, you're like, okay, this is not what I thought it was yeah. going to be. Okay. Um, but for me, uh, wow. there's a verse, I believe it's the very first verse of Surah 7, um, but it's uh, it's Allah talking to the Prophet, telling him not to let anxiety seep into his heart with the message that he right. is delivering. Right, right. right. Um, I think for me that resonated because uh, I've, I've spent over a decade, you know, convinced that A, God isn't real, or B, he doesn't care what happens here. Mm. And so... For me, as I've been going through that journey, I keep going back to that that verse where it's like, don't let the anxiety of, you know, the disbelievers or the doubt mm. seep into your heart because um, the things you read and the I talked to a, to a man at my local mosque who uh, was at one one time the imam, and I tried to explain to him that you know while reading this book. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety. I'm someone who in the past has struggled with intense depression. And yet when I read the Quran, there's a sense of tranquility and a sense of peacefulness that's that kind of comes it. over me when I'm reading it. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's been a battle of, you know, for, for 10 plus years, you've, you've, you've swore at God, you've cursed at God, swore that God wasn't there, wasn't listening. And yet here I am reading the Quran and feeling drawn to it and feeling, you know, like I need to thank God all the time for the blessings that I have, and I feel like I need to take my shahada. And so hmm. it's been a very intense flip of a, hmm. a frame of mind for wow. me. So that wow. verse in particular kind of settles okay. my heart whenever wow. I'm feeling that anxiety. Eric, kind of a slightly off-topic, but not too much off-topic question. I'm not sure yeah. if this is the right way to put it, but you obviously brought up in the church, perhaps mm-hmm. you felt you mentioned hypocrisy, uh, and I think it's not just just you. A lot of people might feel like growing up, and I don't know if this does apply to you, so do correct me. They, they are, yeah. you know, faith and belief is almost manufactured into them from a young age through their parents or, or the society around them. And then perhaps people get to a point 
where they they see the manufacturer and they don't feel like perhaps it fits with them. And then like like yeah. you, they they take a the courageous step of of stepping out, <laughs> not really knowing where it's going to take them, uh, taking that sort yeah. of, let's call it a break or a, or a debrief, and then just trying to find who they are and that's kind of what I feel like what you're doing would you recommend that to people uh, I would I think that uh, especially in the I can't speak for what it's like in the UK right but in the United States um, I live in the Bible Belt so basically means there's a, a there's a church on every corner where oh, okay. I live essentially um, that's basically what that refers to most public policy mm. is framed from a Christian point of view but the young people in these churches quite often leave because um, in America we have, uh, I live very close to what I would consider a mega church. We have all these churches that oh, okay. are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we have, you know, there's a tent city in my city. So you have a lot of young people in America growing up a little bit more socially conscious and they see hmm. churches spending millions of dollars to make themselves bigger while not really doing any sort of effort to help our situation here okay. at home. And I think, I think that, um, and, and that combined with, if you pay attention to the things, a lot of, uh, pastors and things say in America, it's, you know, it's hatefulness. And a lot of us who grew up in the church, they, they, they taught us to, what would Jesus do? You know, treat others as you want to be treated. Um, show forgiveness instead of uh, responding with anger, all of these things. And yet we, in the Christian church, again, from my experience, the people who were teaching me this weren't even remotely close to living it. And then you have um, 9-11, the war in Iraq, and all of these things. And it's like, you know, you you taught me a peaceful message in the church when I grew up, and yet every person in here has supported things that I can't, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was part of why I left. And I think that uh, reading the Quran and going on that journey um, was important. It is important and is um, uh, an important step for me, but I think taking a step away from uh, the Christian church in America is just a healthy thing to do at this point. Eric, um, Growing up in the Bible, but you would obviously have uh, been exposed to the Bible as well, and you're now reading mm -hmm. the Quran. What would you say was the most striking thing about the Quran that attracted you towards it? What would you say is the uh, is really stands out for you? Uh, well, obviously, growing up uh, reading the Old and New Testament as a young kid, um, getting to read the Quran and seeing the stories that I saw as a child told from oftentimes very, very similar stories, maybe slight variations or different perspectives has been important. Obviously, I'm referring to what the Quran says about Jesus and Mary and all of these things. And Jesus uh, specifically is one of the reasons why I left the Christian church, because we're all, as kids, also taught, you know, these are the Ten Commandments. And I believe the first one is, thou shalt have no God above me or whatever, right? And yet, in the Christian church, it's a 50-50 shot whether they're going to end the prayer with, you know, in Jesus' name or to Jesus' name we pray and all of these things. Mm. And that always struck me as clearly contradictory, mm. you know. Um, okay. And I I, I understood this, the Son of God argument to an extent, but at the same time, God is omnipotent, God is all of these things. Why does he need a son? That's something that's iterated in the Quran, but that's a thought that I had way before I read mm. the Quran, you know I mean? I mean? Eric, you did mention at one point that um, 
you know, you obviously left the church. And um, you said to me, if you were speaking to me five years ago, you wouldn't even be at a point to pick up a, a holy scripture. Um, mm-hmm. and, and maybe if I'm, I'm getting the sense, and this is also probably quite relatable to people, is that when people are at that point where they feel like they've been manufactured into faith, everything kind of feels, kinds of doesn't feel genuine. It feels a little bit forced, perhaps it just doesn't feel, the, the feeling isn't really quite there. And that's probably the best I can explain it. Mm-hmm. You you kind of gone on this journey and, and you said, you know, it still took five years and even after five years, perhaps you were not quite yet ready to pick up a holy book. Mm-hmm. But would you say that for someone who's been through that sort of manufacturing and then they feel like they're not going to be able to retrieve their faith, they're not going to be able to come back into spirituality, will, will they be able to reignite that in, in, in a genuine way? And do things change? Do, do things start to feel more real, more like it's being done for the right purpose? Uh, that's a good question. I think that so for me it was a lot of uh, how do I how do I approach this? Um, I can only speak for me personally, but for me it was a lot of sorry. Repeat the question. I'm having a brain fart right no now. No worries. Basically, I what I feel like from your journey is that you've come out of the church and you felt like maybe this isn't exactly the right feeling for me, and then maybe maybe five years have passed. And in that five years, you know, you were kind of finding yourself and maybe not quite ready. Uh, okay, yeah. But then a time actually did eventually come where you were ready again. And, and I just want to know, is that how, because a lot of people might feel like that would never happen, but it has clearly happened with you. Yeah, I think for me, it started out as a, a realizing uh, I met my wife eight years ago. I hope she doesn't hear this and it turns <laughs> out I'm wrong and I get yelled at. But She's I definitely... met her eight years ago, but for the first three-ish years of that relationship, I was very much dejected with life, didn't care much, was not a good partner, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and after those three years, um, whether it was, you know, my history of alcoholism during college, all these things that I went through in life, I realized that I needed to repair the damage that had been done to me emotionally, mentally, spiritually before I could move forward with my life. And so I had to go through that journey. Um, and I think that getting to a place where I felt confident in myself and my intelligence and all of these things, and I was like, you know what, I can pick up a book and read it and parse it out and understand it and all of these things. But I had to, I, I, in some ways, I had to heal my heart before I was ready to open it up to the That's possibility exactly. of spirituality again. You know what I mean? And it can be done. It definitely through yeah, your experience. Yeah, absolutely can be done. And I think that's that's a really strong message. I don't know if, if you meant to leave that here, but that is the message that I've certainly kind of got here for a lot of our viewers. I'm sure the same as well. That you can, and uh, you know, this yeah. is a, a very powerful story of success. And um, you know, I mean, I I personally wish just the absolute absolute best for you, no matter you know whatever you do. It's just it's such a genuinely inspiring story, and you know, kind of pathway that you've talked to us about i i appreciate that I, I feel like it's a it's a human story i don't know how incredible it is but uh yeah i just i try to do the the best that i can and i think that i've been doing that for a long time now and that's led me to a place where i can open myself up to bigger possibilities and none of that was possible first and foremost without opening my heart to the plight of the palestinian people uh, i want to make sure i accentuate that eric it- do you think um, you are an exception or do you see a sort of uh, almost, um, I wouldn't say a movement probably would be too strong a word, but but uh, do you see something, you know, this gaining pace um, 
especially in the Bible Belt, that more and more people are finding out about Islam? Or are or do, you, do you find that more and more people are at least curious about Islam now? Uh, I definitely think those people who um, have been able to see what's been going on in Palestine and Israel since the escalation uh, a couple months ago, those people who have seen the videos that we've all seen and seen these people praising God, those people are much more open to it. Um, and generally in America, my opinion of Americans, <laughs> this is going to sound rude, is by and large they can't see 15 feet in front of them. So the the concept of, you know, zooming out and analyzing things in the way that you mm, have to analyze them to open yourselves up to those, I think that's a longer-term project. Uh, here in America, very indiv hyper-individualistic society, even amongst our families, you know, we only see each other on holidays for the most part. Um mm. Yeah, it's it's a very isolated worldview over here. So for those of us who can zoom out and see w the world as a more collective group of humanity, I think, yeah, that it is possible that that is gaining steam and that is opening people's hearts. Um, but it's a long road ahead, at least in, here in America. Right. Eric, um, an absolute delight and a pleasure to speak to you. Um, may God be with you um, and in yeah. all the endeavors and may God open your heart even more towards truth. Yeah, God willing, uh, I'll continue on my journey and will count myself amongst my Muslim brothers and sisters before too long. Um, but I appreciate y'all's time. Uh, it was really exciting. Never done this before, and it was a great conversation. Eric, you smashed it, man. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Have a Take good care. One. Peace, peace be with you. So that was uh, Eric Merchant, uh, who uh, was born and raised in southern U.S. Uh, in Tennessee um, in a very Baptist Christian household and is now studying the Holy Quran and uh, is um, has been reinvigorated as a result of uh, uh, of doing that. What a what a story, Brother Kiyum, uh, Brother Kamada, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very used to having uh, Brother Kiyum here, so apologies. No worries. Yeah. Yeah, um, look, I, I think beyond obviously everything that we're discussing, his his journey, and inshallah may it be a good one, is going to be something that a lot of people can relate to. They may not want to admit it, but it is going to relate to them. And it, this journey, I need to emphasize, I need to reiterate, this journey starts off with courage. Yeah. It takes the step of courage. It actually takes what we quite literally call a leap of faith. Mm. If you want to find faith, you have to take your leap of faith. And for everybody, wherever you are, that could mean a different thing. But to become uncomfortable, to wander a little bit, isn't something that's, you know, bad. Let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, you, you do find stories of this, but unfortunately, you know, it's not really kind of the topic of the show right now. But I just wanted to leave with that point that this is absolutely what I've walked away with. Yes. Um, thank you. Thank you very, very much uh, for that. And on that note, uh, let's now go to our next guest, who is um, uh, Nikki Lund. Uh, and Nikki is a disabled U.S. veteran who recently converted to Islam. She learned more about Islam through social media she advocates for a variety of um, liberations and shares how Allah manifests his guidance in everyday life. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show, Nikki. Hello, how are you? 
Really a pleasure to speak to you, Nikki. Thank you so very much for joining us. We're really excited to uh, to speak to you. Um, tell us about. Um, let's let's start with your your experience, um, which I believe came about as a result of the impact uh, of the resistance uh, and the resilience, I should say, that uh, the Palestinian people are showing, and that led to led you towards a very spiritual journey tell us about it yes i saw so many palestinian mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters holding their loved ones crying out crying out to allah asking you know please let my beautiful members be in jinnah and that was something that really struck me was they weren't angry this wasn't anger at who did this but rather a call to god thanking them for all of the beauty and to have taken them straight to jenna without pain without suffering and something just spoke to my heart as a mother Hmm. seeing that and i i i said to myself well i need to i need to read this book this is incredible what is in the Quran that I have missed for the 30 years of my life? And Alhamdulillah, my father has had a copy for over 30 years <laughs> that he bought when he was in uh, Saudi Arabia wow. in the early 90s. And I borrowed that copy, and I feel like my life has been exponentially changed ever since. Wow. I mean, we, we've been speaking, I think, for the past few minutes about just a lot of people that have been curious. And I don't think that past the curiosity, a lot of them actually may have gone and picked up a lot about the Quran. We just do not know. But we do have you here today. You are one of those people who actually took that step and you decided to go and, and find out a little bit more. And being a mother, which you you just mentioned that as well, how has then, past your curiosity, how has the Quran actually changed you? Because you, you have mentioned that it did, but exactly what did it do? Yes, I would say that I see a lot in so many more actions, hmm. especially in my children. Both my children are very young, so they're closer to Allah than I am, I, I believe. And they see and notice things and teach me things that I would, I would miss as an wow. adult. Wow. Things that are so important. I mean, my daughter, she repeated more of <laughs> Salah prayer than I knew only after seeing me <laughs> pray a handful of times. SubhanAllah. Wow. That's, that's just absolutely amazing. And, you know, we, like I said, Danielle as well, and, and Nikki, we've been speaking about how these instances of these people in Gaza, in Palestine, the mothers, the children, the fathers, the brothers, sisters, they are showing this great, immense faith. And it, of course, it's inspiring non-Muslims. But I think even to a large degree, it's even waking up Muslims that are already there. So that, that includes me as well. It's, it's kind of a reigniting factor for us that, okay, this is what it's actually all about. So with, having said that, Nikki, this is all about personal kind of experience. So can you kind of elaborate on specific instances where you've seen Allah's guidance manifest in your own life and where it's provided you strength and resilience to you as well because that's obviously what got us curious in the first place how can we be that that kind of resilient and then 
how have these moments kind of inspired you to share your journey with others as well? Because obviously before the show, I checked your TikTok, your Instagram, you're very vocal, <laughs> alhamdulillah, right? You go check your account out as well. I'm going to do that as well. What kind of led you to do that? Yes, I've uh, I've seen TikTok as a platform to reach a lot of people and I've been wanting to do more advocacy on that platform and I believe that what was holding me back was needing a love guidance. Hmm. And when I did find that guidance through him every anxiety and bits of depression that I was struggling with that was holding me back in many circumstances I don't feel that anymore Hmm. when I'm anxious or I'm feeling, you know, a slight bit down or even after seeing, you know, these awful videos coming out of Gaza and out of Palestine, I, I just go to my prayer mat and give it back to Allah. And I never had that sense of consciousness and knowing that I could go leave it somewhere, leave it with him and know that it's taken care of and one specific instance that recently I experienced was I simply went out to the pharmacy alhamdulillah my children are visiting their father currently so they were not with me and I got a flat tire Hmm. and the I'm hearing the the da-dum da-dum sound as it goes around and I'm praying to Allah please just let me make it to somewhere safely I make it to a Jiffy Lube station and unfortunately they're not able to help me so I call a tow truck they tell me it's going to be about two hours and well I wasn't expecting to be out and it's Maghram prayer and I realized well now is my moment Allah gave me this opportunity to be safe and now I need to show him through my faith and my dedication by going out and publicly praying because that was where I was available. Yeah. So with my back to a major street, I prayed Salah and not five minutes after that, my tow truck shows up. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so many circumstances where he's ever present. He's right there. And all you have to do is see and call for him. And it is so beautiful. Powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, absolutely. Uh, extremely motivational. Um, Nikki, I want to take a step back and ask you uh, about uh, this journey um, and, and the stages of this journey. So when you, you mentioned that your father uh, had bought a Quran uh, from his time in Saudi Arabia, uh, so how long did you actually take to study the Holy Quran? I would say it didn't take me that long to realize so many things in the Quran were answers to questions that were already present. When I first got married about 10 years ago, my ex-husband was a member of the church and we became very embedded in the church, but I struggled with so many parts of their Holy Trinity, of praying to Jesus, And there was so much in that capacity that just never made sense. And when I asked questions, there were never answers to those questions. And very quickly, 
as I'm going through the Quran, as I'm listening to speakers uh, talk about Islam, I'm realizing all of those questions are answered in the Quran, in Islam. And Alhamdulillah, I just needed to look there and realize that I've been a Muslim my whole life and I just had to come home. Wow. Okay. So um, uh, let me ask you now the, a question that I asked, uh, that we asked our, our previous guest as well. Um, anything, uh, any favorite verses from the Quran? A I would say <laughs> I, it's a, it is a tough question. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Why, oh gosh, I think if you asked me that question, you would have thrown me off the spot as well. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Throw me for a loop on that one. I, I feel like uh, Surah Al-Baqarah is honestly got so many great, incredible passages hmm. that hmm. are so important to the basis of our humanity. And I particularly, when I'm stressed, I will put on a recitation of that uh, Bakra, of Surah Bakra, and just listen. And I feel like it just calms me down. Nikki, if I can challenge you a little bit on that. So, um, a devout Christian might say the same thing about the Bible, may say the same thing about a few chapters in Luke. How would you? What, what do you find uh, different between Bible and the Quran? From the Bible's perspective, it always felt as if it was speaking in third person. Yes, and it, it does. wasn't a direct Correct. it wasn't a direct conversation with you. Yeah. And that's what it feels like when you're reading the Quran, when you're listening to the recitations. Mm. It feels as if you're being spoken to directly. And I think that's so different from how you listen to the Bible or preaching in general. Mm. That's that's pretty profound. I can relate to that, mm. uh, Daniel. Thank you very much for the question, by the way. But yeah, it was. Um, it's that's exactly what it is. It is. Yeah. This is a letter. From I mean, Allah, you, you, from you, God. you feel it. I mean, it, it, it is exactly. I mean, it, it's addressed to the Prophet Muhammad, but it's it's speaking to you. That's right. And uh, it's speaking to every person who is actually reading it. And um, uh, and absolutely, yeah. Um, and I'm totally in sync with you there as well. When I read the Bible and I read the Quran, <clears throat> obviously there are a lot of stories in the in the Bible as well, and there are lots of passages were very inspiring in the Bible also. And we draw inspiration as Muslims from the Bible, um, both from the New and the Old Testament. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the starkest difference that there is between the two books is that it's in first person, and it's it, it is, it's just so personal. It's, it's mm -hmm. speaking to your heart. Um, right. So, um, so you you've said that you um, you're now um, Alhamdulillah Muslim, and your children are uh, growing up as Muslims as well. How old are they? I have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old little boy. Oh, wow, that's uh, that's the cutest age in the world. Um, <laughs> so great. Right. <laughs> but but equally, probably hands full as well, four and two. So, uh, oh, yeah, I detected that because I've got the same. <laughs> it's a good handful. It's yeah, so it's much fun. Productive handful, yeah. Right, okay. And uh, do you, um, 
I think it's probably too early for them to to find it because I guess you know you you discover the challenges only when you you sort of begin to go to school and you you discover other things and you you know there is opposition or there there's different views um but at the moment do you do you see them enjoying their their life in um being brought up in an islamic way yes specifically my daughter my daughter is very intelligent and very compassionate emotionally intelligent as well and I got her a book of Islam and we've been reading it and one day she wakes up and she pulls her book out of the shelf and she tells me my grandfather tells me in my dreams that I need to read this oh, and wow. I'm confused because we don't we don't have a grandfather she doesn't term she doesn't use that term with anybody and I, it takes me a minute and then she's talking with her father telling her father how we're praying now and she's showing the motions and reciting Allah Akbar and all of these things and she goes and my grandfather tells me to read this book and she shows the book again and I it finally clicks with me I said all right do you mean that Allah is grandfather is that what you mean <laughs> and she looks at me dead in the eyes as if it's the most obvious question in the world <laughs> well yes mom subhanallah uh, oh my god it was so beautiful and i feel like she is incredibly in tune with that and i it was almost as if when i finally brought that up to her she was like oh finally mother <laughs> so think the things they teach us subhanallah this is uh <laughs> This is inspiration for so many people out there. Excellent. Um uh, Nikki, can't thank you enough for joining us today. It was such a pleasure and a total delight. Um thank you very much. All the very best to you and all the very best to your children. Uh may God be with you and may peace be with you. Alhamdulillah, you as well. Thank you very much. So that was uh, Nikki Lund, who is um, is based in the U.S., uh, is a disabled U.S. veteran and who's converted to Islam and was sharing to us her story uh, about it. Uh, very inspirational, Imam Kamar. Yeah, also a U.S. veteran. Ashima didn't ask her about that as well a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, this is, this, is, um, this is what it means. This is the journey. People have so many different journeys. And I think it's important to take that step. Like I said, there's so many people out there we just spoke to a US vet. You had someone else who grew up in the church and many others who are just online and they're extremely curious as to what is the source of this tranquility. I think Nikki used the word tranquility. That's a good word. And resilience, of course, of the people in Palestine and Gaza. And they are actually making the move of picking up a Quran going online to look at lectures about Islam, podcasts about Islam, and trying to understand really where that comes from. Uh, and you just if you are that person as well, who's just that tad bit curious, and you're probably already listening to the Voice of Islam anyway, so that's a good sign, go and do that. Go and actually take that step. And there's, there's actually quite a lot of resources, aren't, Daniel, aren't there out there that you can actually, if you want to take the step? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, for more research, I mean, there's this website... Um uh, www.alislam.org there is this website in the UK um, uh, called Rational Religion 
dot uh, org, I think it is, as well. So I mean, there's there's and and you can find books there. You can uh, download the books for free. You can download the Quran for free. Um, and yeah, you can uh, and and yeah. then you can contact um, uh, exactly. An imam. There's so many books that you can read. There's also actually, if you're not the reader person, and uh, you know that's fine. If you are, if you want someone to think to watch, then there's also content there as well. We have platforms like MTA.TV, and for Nikki, if you're still listening, there's also kids shows there as well. So if you go to MTA.TV/kids, there's also a lot of educational content for younger minds who are also curious about what it means to be a Muslim and what does it actually mean to have faith and trust in Allah. And they're very, very, you know, kind of fun kind of shows to watch. So I would recommend anybody who has a child or if you are just an adult with an inner child, mta.tv <laughs> slash kids is the place to go. Right. right. Yeah. Um, we've only got about 10 minutes or so and I want to squeeze in our, um, another guest. Um she is Catherine Craig, uh, who's an advocate for liberation of Palestine and is currently educating us herself on the teachings of Quran and Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Really a pleasure. So tell us, um, Catherine, as someone who um, is an ex-Baptist, how has your per- perception of Islam changed after learning more about the religion? Um, so I was raised as an ex-Baptist for my entire life, and my preconceived idea of Islam was that it was the religion of terrorists. And this was something that I passively accepted because it was the kind of environment that I was raised in, and it was very easy to accept that because there were no discussions arguing against that at all. Um, The main thing that I have learned is that everything that I thought before that was true, um, every other preconceived notion that was taught to me is a lie. Islam is the religion of peace. Allah is the God of mercy. Like it has completely changed my point of view. And I'm just grateful that I've gotten a chance to educate myself and change that point of view and hopefully share that with others. So is that by reading the Quran or, or reading other books as well in addition to the Quran? So I immediately started with the Quran because mm-hmm. just just go straight to just go straight to the words of Allah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a wonderful friend send me a book um, by Asad Tarsin called um, "Being Muslim: A Practical Guide." And I started reading that along with the Quran just to try to understand more about Muslims and the religion of Islam. And that has provided so much peace and comfort on top of the Quran um, that since I've started reading in the last few months. Catherine, there's so much noise outside, uh, out there uh, against Islam. And mm. um, especially if you're a woman, there's you know there's there's just so much noise around um, uh, around how Muslims are how Muslim women are oppressed and and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So how did you bring yourself about to to even conduct that research given all uh, the brainwashing that you must have had? All the stereotypes, rather. One hundred percent. 
One hundred percent. You are you are so correct that that is the number one propaganda tool in the U.S., especially in Christian nationalist groups, is they use the argument that Muslim women are oppressed and that they need the United States to come in and save them or they need other religions to free them from this oppression. When in reality, <clears throat> I began reading the Quran and I believe it was in the second surah that discussed women's rights when it comes to divorce. And it was such a different point of view than what I had been taught that I actually had to sit there and reread it a couple times to make sure that I had read it correctly. And as soon as I saw that in the Quran, I started looking at other um, Muslim women and reading their stories and honestly trying to just educate myself on what the actual beliefs are. You have to get out there and dig for the knowledge. You can't just expect it to come along and change your mind. You do have to go out there and look for the truth. How has the um, the resilience shown by, the amazing resilience, I should say, shown by Palestinian mm. men, women, and even children affected you? Uh, it was the main catapult uh, for me looking into Islam and the Quran. Um, I, I remember when the first few days of the attack happened, I was watching reports and I was seeing the reaction of these people uh, losing everything, their families, their homes, their extended families, everything that is their life, not even to mention the fact that they have been occupied for over 75 years. This is not a new thing. Um, and I was watching this and I could not understand how they were still praising Allah and asking him for patience to, to, to carry this. Um, I think one of the stories that I knew as a kid was the story of Job and how his wife came to him and said, why, why, why do you, why do you do like, why do you hold on to Allah? Like first God and die. And I, I expected not to see any kind of trust or faith in Allah through their suffering. And they are so resilient in their faith and they trust him so completely to know exactly what his will is for them. I, I needed to know what what is this? What is what is this trust that you have that you believe he can actually take care of you? Whereas in what I was raised was there was no trust. There was no mercy. There was nothing. He was a very angry God from what I was trained. So to see them suffering through the most devastating moments that they could experience and going to Allah and asking him for patience and praising him for keeping them safe, even if they've lost everything, was incredible to me. Catherine, what would be your message to those people, both in the United States and in Europe, who want to, mm -hmm. who are running campaigns to burn the Quran? I think that <laughs> your hate is misguided and you should probably do some educating of yourself because if you are passively accepting someone else's beliefs without taking the time to actually look it up for yourself, you are doing more harm to your own soul than anyone else's. And it does not matter how often they try to burn the Quran or any other books. The one thing that has shocked me about um, 
learning about the Muslim religion is how many Muslims memorize the Quran fully because they understand that the other uh, words of God have been changed um, for politics, for greed, for that kind of thing, but the Quran has not changed. And I would say to those people who want to burn it, if you want to make that choice for yourself, go right ahead. But I know that it will transcend your hate and it will transcend time because there are people devoted to this and it is the truth and they will carry it no matter what you do. Awesome. Catherine, thank you very much once again. I understand uh, you you agreed to come on despite your lunch break. Uh, really appreciate uh, <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, your time and no, no, I hope you can go back to it. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And I, I just want to say one more thing. So, I, I am a white woman with an incredible amount of privilege. And the only thing that I would say to other white women and other white people in Europe and America and all over the world is you have the privilege to be able to amplify voices of the oppressed. If you are not using your privilege to do that, I don't know what kind of a human being you can think that you are. It is our gift to be this privileged, and we should absolutely use it to bolster other people. Catherine, really, thank you from the bottom of my, of, of my heart. Thank you very much for, for joining. Absolutely. All the best with Thanks your um, with, with your research. All the best again with uh, with your life. Have a have a lovely uh, <laughs> uh, weekend ahead and peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you as well. Salam, salam. Thank you so much. Wa alaikum assalam. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Catherine um, who was uh, joining us uh, and talking and she's somebody who is uh, Catherine Craig who's somebody uh, from a Baptist background and is currently reading the Holy Quran. We've gone only about uh, two minutes mm. or so left um, and my 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 final question to you, Imam Kamar, would be for anybody who's listening out there today um, is not a Muslim mm. uh, and listening to this show um, and wants to um, is curious about uh, about Islam despite all the noise. Mm. What would your message be? Let's start off with what's going on. Uh, you've got people who are curious because they're seeing their families being lost. Someone's lost their kid. Someone's lost their father. And like we've heard a lot of times now, they're not angry. They're not anything. They're just happy. Those Muslims do that because they've been told in the Quran that anybody who's martyred in the way of God and is an innocent person in particular, then they, nay, they're not dead. They're actually living. They're actually with God Almighty themselves. And this is what they believe. This is the faith that Muslims hold. So therefore, a life lost isn't a life lost to them. That person for them is in the greatest place that a person can be. And that's with God. This is their faith. Now, how do you learn about that? Exactly the same place where they learn about it from. That verse is in the Quran. And like you said, that's alislam.org. But if you, you know, not everybody can just pick up the Quran on day one because of Arabic, because of they don't understand exactly what it's saying. So you might need some help with it. Then you've got Quran.io as well, which is a recently new created website, which has got the Quran in a, 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 a various a variety of languages. So you can, whatever language you speak, they probably have it. Right. Um, also, every single verse, you click it, you open it in the language that you want. It will have a, a further explanation of what that verse means, theologically and historically speaking. So it's all there, Quran.io. You can actually also access that website by going to alislam.org 
clicking on the Holy Quran tab mm-hmm. and then clicking on search Quran, you can access it from there as well. It's right. all in one place. It's literally the go-to place to learn the beginning of understanding the Quran. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Imam Kamal. Uh, this was our show for this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us today. We've talked about um, the Quran, the inspiration that Quran is becoming for millions of people out there, for uh, for many people who are not uh, even Muslims. They're finding inspiration in the word of the in the word of God. Thank you very much once again. Six o'clock news is next.